Welcome to the University of Washington's Political Economy Forum. We bring together diverse scholars, policymakers, and citizens to discuss current public policy issues, to inform the public about them, and to find evidence-based solutions. Feel free to visit our website at uwpoliticaleconomy.com. We publish new episodes of this podcast every week. If you have questions or suggestions for discussion topics, please contact us on Twitter at ForumUW or email us at uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Hello, everyone. My name is Nicholas Wittstock. I'm a fellow at the UW Political Economy Forum, and today I'm speaking to Natasha Tuzikov, who is assistant professor at York University and a research fellow with the Justice and Technoscience Lab School of Regulation and Global Governance at the Australian National University. Uh, we talk about a new book co-edited by Natasha called Power and Authority in Internet Governance, Return of the State? Question mark. Many have argued uh, that the internet is slowly making national governments less capable, possibly even obsolete. Can governments really control the internet? Are governments really constrained by the internet, or can they not just shut it down? Has the internet shifted power over content or speech regulation to digital media companies? Can governments control what kind of data companies collect within their borders? Here, the authors in the book discuss different areas of internet governance relating to all of these questions and more. They differentiate between the physical infrastructure of the internet, so cables and connections, and to what extent governments can control these or to what extent they are independent in governing these. Same for the virtual infrastructure, so domain names and such and then data and content. So as you can see, this is a wide-ranging issue, but I think it's an extremely timely one. So without further ado, I bring you Professor Natasha Tuzikov. Hello, Natasha. Hello. Very happy to have you on. You recently co-edited a book called Power and Authority in Internet Governance, Return of the State. It's still fairly common, I would say, in, in sort of tech circles to assume that internet technology or some of the new sort of data-driven technologies are going to ultimately bend the nation state. It seems like your book is taking a bit of a different perspective, or at the very least is trying to explain to a wider audience a little bit more what the different dynamics are in this context. Could you explain a little bit what the current state of internet governance looks like? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a huge topic. So this book is a co-edited production. Uh, Blaine Haggard, an associate professor at Brock University here in Canada and the Niagara Falls area, and Janart Scholte, who's the chair of uh, Global Transformation and Governance Challenges at Leiden University. And I met him when he was the co-director for the Center for Global Cooperation Research at the University of Duisburg-Essen, where I was a research fellow. What we wanted to do with this was to really underline the point, return of the state question mark. So uh, to what extent is the state back? And what are the dynamics between democratic and authoritarian countries? Because there are some remarkable similarities. Anyone who's noticed and followed with great interest, uh, like myself, the rise of Alibaba, the rise of Tencent, mm -hmm. sees the strong similarities in terms of the business models, the modes of operation, the surveillance capitalism of, of Tencent and Alibaba and Google and Facebook. So when we look at states, what kind of state interaction do we see? What kind of similarities and differences between and amongst uh democratic states and authoritarian states. So when we were looking at this project, what we really wanted to do was look widely and uh, solicit 
contributions from emerging scholars, especially scholars who had expertise in, in China, in Russia, uh, in Latin America, in Brazil, and think about what type of states we're talking about and what type of state involvement and how that state involvement rubs up against and interacts with private sector involvement, especially these big tech giants, but also you know, domestic internet companies and civil society and what forms that civil society takes. I think one of the answers to that very broad question is when we talk about internet governance, the role of the state really depends. It depends mm. what we're talking about. We've got a fascinating chapter by uh, on China by um, Ting Lao and Aufei Lu about the nature of Chinese censorship on the internet. Mm -hmm. And they really talk about this as being very fragmented. It's very heavy handed. It's very direct uh, when that content is something that the Chinese government perceives as uh, political as something sensitive uh, regarding party stability and integrity. So whether that's um, certainly COVID now and the, the party's role in maybe not addressing or suppressing COVID as quickly as it could have, there's a, a very strong um, authoritarian, even draconian um, mm. censorship. But when it's a topic that there is less state interest in, um, and they use this as online health information and online health advertising, the, take, the state takes a much more laissez-faire approach, a, a mm. much more approach where it allows tech companies like Baidu to regulate with a light touch, a, a self-regulation. So part of uh, understanding internet governance is understanding that states aren't unitary actors and they don't take the same approach to every issue. And this includes countries like China where the popular perception is that every action on the internet is heavy-handed right. and, and, and censorous, and that's not the case. So to understand internet, internet governance in China really regards looking at specific case areas, and that's what, uh, that's what the book tries to do as a whole for different countries. So you open the book with this distinction made by uh, the French president Emmanuel Macron the difference that he makes between the California model of internet regulation and the Chinese model. The Chinese model you've already spoken to a little bit, but what exactly is that perception of a difference? Like what exactly are those archetypes of models and are they, are they a reality or is that more of an imagination? Yeah, and that, that's, a, that's a really great question. So President Macron, when he was making this speech and he was making it before the Internet Governance Forum, um, this was a, a, a speech that really tried to set out that there are different modes or models of internet governance, more ideal types than, than actual types. And according to Macron, we're at a, a pivotal moment, a deciding moment where especially democratic countries should start thinking about how they really want to see internet governance evolve. So if we take the Chinese model of internet governance, a very state-directed, authoritarian, heavy-handed approach where the, the state plays a much stronger role, a Californian model of internet governance is where the free market, where especially the big handful of tech companies play a role. And this is a, a regulatory model where you have a lot of industry regulation, a lot of light touch regulation. The government is much more in the background, occasionally interceding, but much more delegating authority or saying, yes, you know, uh, that industry-led uh, self-regulation is more appropriate. And Macron, importantly, called for a third way, to especially mm. positioning the EU as a regulatory superpower to say there, there is a third way, and this third way involves democratic states. 
recognizing human rights and interceding uh, to address the significant problems of the internet from uh, hate speech to misinformation to um, you know all, all the kinds of ills that we talk about that there isn't just two competing models there, there should be a third way. And there's a role and even a necessity for democratic states to have legislation, to set rules and rules that don't just benefit a handful of, of big commercial tech companies that broadly benefit society. Why would you say this is a pivotal moment? Uh, well, for Macron, uh, it's, it's, it's a pivotal moment because the EU is trying to position itself. Certainly the EU has seen the, the rise of tech giants and the commercial dominance of the United States, especially the big players and the, the kind of the, the content layer with, with Amazon, Netflix, Apple, all of the other uh, companies. So the EU is trying to figure out how does, how does it fit in? How are its values and laws reflected in the internet? We see that with the GDPR. So for, for Macron, definitely for European leaders, this there's this uh, a geopolitical economic incentive to try and figure out how does the EU fit in and, and make sure that the EU plays a strong role in setting rules and standards that benefit the European Union and not, not just the United States. For the authors of the book, this is a pivotal moment because for too long, much scholarship on internet governance has really, has really maybe not examined the role of the state as you know, as critical or as nuanced a way as it as it could. There's been excellent scholarship on how authoritarian countries deal with internet governance, mm-hmm. um, pointing out censorship, uh, pointing out abuses of human rights. But there's been a, a sense that you know all author- all authoritarian countries operate the same way that they they all um, have a kind of a cookie cutter approach and that they treat the internet the same in all modes. And this is what our chapters in on China and, and Russia really push back against, that there are different modes of internet governance even within um, authoritarian countries and amongst different issues. So to, to really understand how the internet is governed, we have to look at those individual issues. And then we have to think, what are some of those similarities and differences between democratic and authoritarian countries? And there, there are big ones. As for the moment, uh, I've been studying internet governance since... Uh, formally since since 2011, but informally a few years before that. And certainly I thought Cambridge Analytica would be would be that that moment. You have uh, worldwide attention and suddenly policymaker attention being brought to bear on how these mostly US platforms operate. And we've seen since then a kind of a steady drumbeat of scholars and policymakers saying something has to be done. The current right. mode of self-regulation isn't enough. But even then, you, you still see skeptics, people saying, well, the Facebook Oversight Board, right? Maybe that will be mm. a useful way for uh, independent, so-called independent experts to address problematic content. To, to that, uh, myself and, and my co-authors would say, well, that seems to be another form of, of self-regulation. What we, what we need to investigate in a much more critical, much more holistic way is how the state should be involved there common imagination when it comes to internet governance probably in the first place thinks about two issues which are 
and you've mentioned them uh, at least indirectly, which are free speech and privacy. I'm going to assume that that's probably a little bit too narrow of a view, right? I think that there's a lot more involved. I think um, some of the contributions in your um, edited volume definitely make that case and really at least showed me that this is a much, much wider field, much more complicated. Uh, could you speak a little bit to the different areas of regulation? Yeah, and that, that's a really good point. So one of our discussions, because we had a workshop where our authors brought their papers in progress to the workshop and discussed them. And one of our big points of discussion was what is internet governance? What, right. what does what does this field encompass? Exactly. Because there are there are different threads of internet governance and much excellent literature has been focused on the infrastructural elements. So that the the you know exchange points, the technical aspects, the actual mm. physical construction of the internet, how that works, how that's governed, how that should work, all of that. And mm -hmm. sometimes mm -hmm. internet governance is, is very narrowly conceived and understood, especially by people outside the field, as simply that focus on the physical infrastructure. And that, while important, we wanted to broaden that and say, what are the different ways of thinking about data? What are the different ways of thinking about content uh, in regards to internet infrastructure? So one point we wanted to broaden this concept and this discussion of internet governance. And in doing so, our, our authors were really then free to consider a number of different areas that they were really interested in. So we have a chapter that looks on looks at how the EU is working with uh, private sector actors, platforms to regulate uh, misinformation on the Internet. So this, this idea of fake mm -hmm. news. We have a chapter from Brazil, really interesting, on smart cities and how actors in the global mm. south, uh, a powerhouse like Brazil, is trying to negotiate this development of, of smart cities, especially with um, dealing with multinational companies from, from Europe and the United States. And interesting, we have a really great chapter on digital capitalism from Latin America and how countries are trying to set policies in different ways to deal with this shift towards the digital economy. So everything from dealing with Uber in right. in South America, how is that regulated? This this dynamic between companies, mostly in the global uh, north, uh, headquartered, operating in the global south, and the global south really trying to take this opportunity to say, what policies work for us? I, given mm. our particular historical, socioeconomic, political context, how should we address digital capitalism? What in terms of data storage or data collection or you know, uh, direct uh, state involvement in regulation, how should we regulate that? And I think that really echoes with smaller countries like Canada, like Australia, where we're really trying to figure out how do we fit into this idea of a, a digital economy or a data economy. Canada doesn't have the platforms like the United States does. We have, we have mm -hmm. Shopify, but um, we're, we're, we're a small market. And our regulators, frankly, are ignored by the by the uh, the big tech platforms. Facebook has uh, defied, openly defied our uh, our privacy commissioner when our privacy commissioner ruled that it broke Canadian privacy law. So, how do smaller countries operate? How do their governments react? Mm. So, this we wanted to broaden this conversation of internet governance to include those discussions, discussions that are usually left out of maybe more traditional or more. Uh, physical infrastructure focused accounts of internet governance. Yeah, it was very, um, I, don't, I don't want to say surprised or pleasantly surprised, I suppose, by uh, seeing uh, one chapter in your, in your volume on what I think was called data driven, the data driven economy, mm -hmm. 
which which I think is what you're speaking to uh, at the moment, which I'm curious about what you think the main conflict lines are. You're mentioning a conflict between, um, yeah, mostly ultimately American companies that deal in data at the end of the day and local regulators, specifically concerning regulations around privacy. Could you explain a little bit what the conflict is here exa exactly and how you see that conflict developing in the future? Yeah, there's there's a couple of, uh, of different maybe threads or or themes to that discussion. One of them is there is a, a norm that has been strongly pushed and strongly popularized as, as universalized uh, by American companies of the free flow of data. Mm -hmm. And this is the idea that through the internet, there has to be a free flow of data, a free flow right. of content, that this is essential first to the very physical operation of the internet, and secondly, to its commercial, cultural, uh, social success. And a pushback to that involves questioning who this universal flow of data really benefits. Mm. It, it benefits um, largely, but primarily benefits the United States, which was you know, a, a creator of the internet, the, the, the country whose government had really the, the foresight to pour a lot of money into the early tech startups or the, and the companies that you know, went digital after this. Mm. And, This free flow of data is, is kind of, as one of our authors talks about, is universalized as a, as a, as a benefit, as a, a, a public good, as, as something that should be unquestioned mm. as a, an operating norm, as an operating feature of the internet. And one thing we want to push back about is when we have something like that benefiting certain commercial actors and not others, and certain states, not others, how do other states and actors interact with that? Right. So if you have countries like the, uh, the EU has, uh, has done, saying that our norm of privacy differs with the US norm yeah. of free speech, how, how, does that, how does that dynamic work out in regards to the internet? Well, we see mm -hmm. with the GDPR, right? We see uh, kind right. of an extraterritorial application of the GDPR and, and how certain businesses and business models had to be somewhat curtailed or managed in a different way if European Union resident data couldn't be captured in the way that they had originally decided. There are four different areas of regulation that you outline, right? I think one that we've just discussed is data. Then there's one area of regulation, which is content, mm -hmm. which is especially about what you were describing earlier about misinformation questions around that. You mentioned physical infrastructure. Here, um, I, I have a question because uh, what exactly is the, is the fear of different states potentially? And um, what are their constraints and challenges? Um, from your chapter on Russia, I got the impression that Russia is seeking to effectively be independent in the physical infrastructure, in, in being able to uphold its own internet so we, we have a, a chapter on Russia by a scholar, Alona Stadnik, um, who's working at the University of St. Petersburg. And her chapter is a really interesting one because it, it sheds that kind of nuanced, critical light of a, a country that we often point to as one of the authoritarian leaders in terms of right. internet governance, and really importantly highlights what they can't do. So she carefully separates the Russian government's ambitions. The Russian government wants to create 
essentially a kill switch for the internet. So this would be, uh, they say whenever there's, it, it could be um, a domestic uprising or uh, an international incursion into Russian territory. Um, critics argue that this could uh, obviously apply to democracy protesters. They want to organize a, a kill switch so that they could you know, take the internet offline. We've seen a number right. of countries, especially those in Africa, do this. Um, Russia wants to control much more directly all internet companies that operate in Russia, including some of the big multinationals like Google or, or Microsoft or Facebook, and institute a number of other security procedures. So their, their list of what they would like to do is very long and complicated. And uh, Dr. Stasen does a great job in kind of outlining that. And really importantly, then she talks about what they are not able to do because they don't have the internal market advantage to do this. So if we compare China and Russia, China has a large internal market. China mm -hmm. enacted protectionist measures so that it would grow its own domestic internet champions. That's what they call them of Alibaba, Baidu and Tencent. And they're able to control those, those, uh, those companies because they are Chinese based. So they have a, a certain degree, uh, quite a strong degree, but not absolute control over those as our, uh, as our author, uh, uh, Leanne Regia, talks about. Russia is different in that it doesn't have those the similar type of domestic internet champions. It has a few, but it has the, the US-based tech giants operating there. Russia simply doesn't have a big enough stick to compel those internet giants to operate as, as the Russian government wishes. It's fined Google, it's threatened the companies, and you know the, these companies have basically uh, pushed back against the government. They've you know, reluctantly paid fines. They've gradually changed some processes. They've, you know, kind of refused to change other things. So there's a gap between what the Russian government wants to do and its capabilities of doing that. And this mm. is a really important thing to recognize too. When we see governments making these claims or, or rolling out programs that they plan to, you know, surveil in this way or control businesses in this way or shut down the internet in this way to really pick apart those claims and say, you know, do they have the capability of doing this? Right. Do they have the ability to force uh, foreign and domestic companies to operate in the way that they want? And what are some of the repercussions of that? There might be short-term cooperation, but if there's uh, economic, you know, uh, destabilization or economic losses, the companies might push back. There might be a loss of political appetite to do that. And then mm. that that program may fall off the radar. So it's it's pointing out the differences between a company's appetite or a country's appetite to do that and their capability of doing so. I thought that was really striking because it does seem to indicate that you know the techies have a point, right? That the internet and um, some of the um, digital technology of, of of late is constraining governments tremendously. Uh, but would you say would you say that's mainly because the the economic upsides are so large that it's really costly for a state like Russia because uh, to just shut down the internet or just say you know what Google please go home or is, are there physical constraints in in some way which is there any other form of leverage that um, the internet creates vis-a-vis -vis the the Russian state in this in this example yeah, and that's a that's a really great question, and I think this is something we have to think about and 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 do some more research on. Certainly, there are technological constraints, so there are technical constraints on what the Russian government wants to do. And Dr. Stanek explores some of those, and that's probably you know a, a whole other book in itself. Uh, that's a, a large chunk of what her uh, doctoral dissertation is on. It depends, you know, how seriously the government wants to take this and what economic hits or political mm. hits they want to they, they want to take you know how how 
where this fits in your prioritization process. Um, a good example of this is, is China. China is a country that we think of with a great firewall, that we think of as a, as a government that will spare no prisoners, that will uh, put all options on the table in order to achieve its political control. And as uh, Dr. Liane Regia points out in, in her chapter, that's really not the case. So there's a, a mutual dependence between these big um, domestic internet champions and the Chinese government. So for these censorship programs to work, the monitoring the work, as well as all of the, the, the benefits of the digital economy in China, they need the cooperation of these, these companies. Mm, yeah. So there is, there, is some, there is some give and take. The, the, the censorship and the, the monitoring depends on these, but at the same time, if China wants to become this and be this, this you know, a, a global superpower expanding into other areas of Asia and Africa, then they need these, these companies not only to be very healthy, but to expand internationally. And therein is the focus of Lianre's chapter on China is how do Chinese-based internet companies get access to foreign capital? Mm, yeah. so currently, the Chinese government is allowing a select handful of Chinese internet companies to access a loophole in the law, to access foreign capital, technically illegally, but the, the government is looking the other way. And this is because they, they recognize that this economic growth is important. And more importantly, for China to be dominant on the international stage, they need companies that can go up against the likes of Google and Amazon and Apple and all of these companies. And to do so, they need foreign capital. So this is a, it's, a, it's an interesting alliance and it's an interesting uh, sidestepping of official laws in order to access foreign capital. So this shows this kind of careful strategic balance that governments are mm. making in terms of political control and economic development. So I think the declared goal um, of, of Russia was something like information sovereignty or digital sovereignty. I don't quite remember what the term was. I'm not sure what exactly um, the, the professed sort of a Chinese objective is. I think, um, as, you, as you say, right, it's, it's like an important element of that is to be able to compete with American tech giants. What exactly is it that these states cannot do? Are they able to keep, say, data that is uh, generated within China, within Chinese bounds, within Chinese borders? Is that possible? Um, are they able to constrain information as in content that leaves the country or comes into the country um, and to what extent are they able to yeah regulate the physical and virtual infrastructure of the internet and why would they want to do that obviously this is a huge question please feel free mm -hmm. to react to to whatever you want in that yeah yeah and 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 china's goals and china's ability to do this you know is is rightly the, the subject of countless articles and, right. and books. And what we try and get at in, in this book is we've got two chapters on China and they, they try and really pull apart some of this nuanced understanding of what China wants to do mm. and its relationship with its domestic tech champions. So in Lian Regia's uh, chapter, what she tries to do is to, she lays out really nicely China's history of this cyber sovereignty, uh, China's uh, ambitions in becoming this tech superpower and how that plays out. Now, certainly we've got the cultivation of these domestic tech champions. So mm -hmm. we've got um, a clear dominance of Chinese internet companies within China. So Google, Facebook, you know, they either these companies are uh, lightly or totally banned or have a tiny, tiny market share. It's, it's all domestic Chinese companies. 
So does that mean that the Chinese state is able to keep those companies out? So that seems to be some capacity there. Yeah, and this this has been a, a long-held strategy since that really the you know the the early 2000s of adopting a series of, of uh, policies. This was uh, protecting domestic companies like the fledgling Alibaba when eBay wanted to enter the, the company, adopting protectionist measures and restrictive measures that prevented PayPal, for example, from mm-hmm. entering the company and, and cultivating the, the rise of Alipay. So you have a series of, 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 of complex maneuvering to, to grow this mm. uh, domestic Uh, industry while either restricting or completely banning foreign companies. So we we know a number of the the tech giants are, you know, it's it's very difficult to access. Facebook, for example, you can use VPNs. Mm -hmm. And this is where the Chinese government, you know, cracks down heavily if it's something like a a democracy protest or Mm. criticism of the Chinese government. If it's use of a VPN for something a little more frivolous, there is, you know, there's there's some allowance or there's some official tolerance of that. So this is where uh, an authoritarian country tries to balance um, where it should where it should crack down. And I'm certainly mm-hmm. not defending the Chinese government, but saying, you know, that uh, even an authoritarian government chooses right. where to put their uh, very heavy-handed action. So in terms of being domestically, um, you know, serving its domestic market, the Chinese, uh, Chinese government's been very successful. Successive governments have been able to grow this. What they haven't been able to do as successfully is export this, especially to the United States. So in the United States, we still have, you know, the, the, the U.S.-based tech giants range supreme. Mm. And with the ongoing uh, U.S.-China trade dispute, and especially under the Trump administration, we really saw this emerge where you saw a bunch of the, the Silicon Valley tech giants accusing Alibaba and Tencent of mm. you know, surveillance for the Chinese government as if they don't collect the very same data on on Americans. But this is you know their strategic advantage. They see course, they yeah. see the, their the the Chinese platform's expansion into the United States into Europe as uh, as competition for their own networks. So part of that trade war is is political, of course, but a huge part of it is economic. And there's there's some. There's a battle for commercial dominance, especially in the very sophisticated technologies of artificial intelligence. Right. Yeah, I think it's really hard to disentangle to what extent this is um, true national security concern when it comes to some of these high tech issues or to what extent it's at the end of the day really about um, economic considerations. Maybe it's it's most likely part of both. I have one question about the Chinese capacity to really regulate online spaces or data and content um, in the digital space. You're describing that they're very selective in what they uh, clamp down on and what not. To what extent is that deliberate or is that a capacity issue in itself? Um, you're, you're mentioning that China is often displayed as this sort of incredibly uh, powerful state, and, and it certainly is. But in the end of the day, the internet is vast. So, so how how much is that really a choice or a sort of a necessity for the Chinese state? Yeah, and, and this is certainly an area that I'm not an, an expert on. There's There's been some really excellent research detailing the many layers or the many uh, components of Chinese online control and, and censorship. And this this ranges from you know word blockers to actually blocking certain platforms or or technologies mm-hmm. to online armies where this is what they do is report on other people or or um, um, post 
comments favorable of the government, favorable of government policy. So it's, mm. it's many different different layers. Right. But what we also know too is human beings are you know innovative, imaginative, mm. creative mm. people who try and work around blocks. So. Uh, wherever there is a, a stifling, people use codes, um, people uh, communicate different ways, they use VPNs, they employ different different techniques. So there, there is this constant cat and, cat and mouse as, as, as things evolve. And as um, our article by, uh, by Ophelia and, uh, and Ting Lao show, the, the Chinese government doesn't care equally about all issues. Mm-hmm. Certainly where those issues are central to political stability, to the integrity of the party, to the reputation of party leaders, yes, a heavy draconian crackdown. Where those issues are seen as more tangential, uh, less related, more related to the digital economy, there, there's some freedom there. So um, what they also point out quite nicely too is issues can ebb and flow in their the, the nature of the, the political priority attached to them. Something like COVID could start out as, you know, something that is, is just a disease, right? It's simply a communicable disease. Uh, suddenly a political importance is attached to it, a great mm. deal of interest in monitoring that. It might then become uh, a non-controversial issue again and become sensitive. So things change uh, and, and ebb and flow over time. And it's really important to, to understand that as well. Why, if we suddenly see, more comments, more discussions, not to, not to simply to conclude, oh, the Chinese government is somehow missing this or avoiding mm. this. It might be just less important at that time um, in terms of, of a political issue. Right. We spoke about um, President Macron earlier. To what extent are European countries and the EU as such able to regulate both physical and virtual infrastructure as well as data and content related issues on the internet? Another great question and, and a glib reply is, you know, it depends. It depends mm. on, on the issue. It depends on the member states. So uh, a chapter we have, uh, Julia Rohn examines EU efforts to regulate disinformation, um, especially with this, the, the you know, Cambridge Analytica and this, this mm-hmm. fear that elections are being manipulated, that voters are being manipulated in, the, in what information they see and the electoral choices they take. So certainly this is a, an issue of great concern for governments. How governments can actually regulate misinformation is, you know, you can take a, a number of different um, approaches to this. Mm-hmm. One approach that the EU has taken is to work with those tech platforms to, so to, you know, sit with Facebook and Twitter and to say, what what, uh, changes would you feel amenable to in terms of um, regulating misinformation? A challenge with that is that any profit-seeking enterprise isn't going to suggest changes that affect its business model Mm -hmm. negatively. And we know that viral content is is very profitable and hateful uh, misinformation, you know, that kind of speech can be very profitable. So a company like Facebook or YouTube is not going to say, actually, this is how we should uh, change our algorithms. This is what we should do to, you know, the very setup of our, our platform that will regulate misinformation. It'll also purge viewers and will will hemorrhage engagement metrics. So they're mm-hmm. not going to suggest that. A challenge then of, of working with industry is having industry-led or industry-approved measures that aren't really effective. 
On the other hand, there's also a challenge of uh, you, you don't really want to necessarily clamp down on information as such, right? Like you don't want to create a situation. Companies are forced to censor all kinds of information, whether or not they're actually um, bad in any way. Well, this is this is a, a discussion, right? And so when mm. we talk about free flows of information, when we talk about free speech, you're in the United States, that's a very distinct type of free speech. And when we talk about free speech on the internet, what a lot of people often mean, uh, sometimes without knowing so, is a very US style of free speech. Other countries take a much different approach. Uh, in Canada, we have a much more circumscribed, limited um, aspect of free speech. It is not US style free mm. speech. So even when we're talking about things like regulating information, there are always rules on what type of information can be can be spread, right? We have uh, prescriptions, for example, on child pornography, and that's generally agreed mm. as a good thing that child pornography, yeah. child sexual abuse content is, is prohibited. Same as hate speech. But mm. countries take different approaches into first what they define as hate speech, and then the type of regulation they feel comfortable in implementing. The European Union, for example, and Canada have a much uh, different definition and understanding of privacy than does the United States. The challenge when we talk about internet governance is many of these ideas are U.S. ideas, U.S. norms, and they are um, uh, proclaimed as if universal. And when other uh, actors in other countries speak up and say, well, it's not that type of free speech here, what that's often interpreted as is Canada wants censorship. Right. And, and certainly... That's that's a pretty simplistic uh, and pretty unhelpful way to have a discussion. If Canada passes legislation that restricts Facebook in certain ways, that's a democratic choice of Canada. Right. But Facebook's reaction to something like that is that's that's censorship. And so this is what we're we're kind of left in this unhelpful dichotomy of it's either U.S. style free speech or uh, draconian state sponsored censorship. And one thing that the book tries to get at is there's lots of different ways to regulate the internet and there's lots of different ideas, but in many cases, um, the ideas that are considered legitimate and uh, palatable are those approved by US big tech companies. Mm. So I suppose one cynical answer to um, the question of whether or not the internet has weakened or strengthened states is um, implicit in your, in your remark. Um, you, you could argue that it's amplified you the the power of the U.S. state tremendously on a global scale. How, how would you do? You think that's accurate or no? I would say it has amplified U.S. power. I would say certainly that U.S. commercial um, standards and imperatives and preferences, legal technical preferences, are embedded in the in the internet because of U.S. commercial dominance because of. Um, the United States, as we saw through the, the Snowden revelations, uh, putting its imprint on how it operates. Now, the question of U.S. dominance continuing is a, is a big question. Certainly people who study the, again, the, in, the physical infrastructural components of Internet infrastructure see the shift of power moving away from the United States and more to Asia and other countries as those tubes and pipes and, you know, the connecting infrastructure is built by other governments and by private actors. But so when we talk about U.S. power on the internet, we really should be saying U.S. power where mm. and to do what? Are there any other ways in which uh, the internet is 
amplifying or translating, as you say, the interests, the commercial interests of big American tech companies uh, to a global scale? I mean, many of us are, are on social media and social media, a company like Twitter or, and I'm just focusing on the American ones, uh, Facebook, it's, uh, it's co-company Instagram, have certain business model preferences built in. One of those preferences is minimization of privacy. So even little technical things where you open up your account and things are automatically set to sharing the most information. Mm-hmm. Right? So when you open up your Instagram account, it's, you know, share with everybody, you know, post everyone can see, people can see your location, that type of thing. A different model would have everything set to private, right? That would maximize privacy. But we have this, this business model that minimizes privacy. We also have a business model that treats um, a global network as a necessity. And we see this when many people talk about regulating social media. They say, well, social media companies are global and regulating them in terms of what content should be on them, say hate speech or something like that, is very difficult because these are global companies. But they don't need to be global, right? They, they are um, actually based in other countries and they do follow the rules of other countries. So for example, you don't see abortion ads in Saudi Arabia because those are prohibited. But when you point out that these platforms actually are respondent to certain types of local laws and rules, but not others, right? There's this pushback of, well, the, the, the network has to be global. That's the way it has to operate. But one thing what this book tries to do is to push back against these kind of um, uh, statements that certain things are universal and, and present because they have to be, because they are fundamental features of how the technology is created and how it has to exist. And to say, is that really the case, right? Can we have a different type of social media that, for example, is res- uh, responds to the laws of Canada, that responds to the democratically elected leaders of Canada? Hmm. Interesting. Um, what do you feel like people aren't paying enough attention to when they're considering internet governance? Yeah, I, I, I think there's I think there's a lot here. Um, certainly one of my pet peeves when we talk about internet governance is just the focus on the United States, right? And again, here I've, I'm um, guilty of this, talking so much about the United States. We deliberately didn't have an author from the United States in this book because we wanted to focus on other countries. We wanted to have expertise from different areas and to bring um, to the forefront different questions, different attitudes, different regulatory responses that we we don't often see. Too often the literature, the discussions, the policies focused on the EU or the United States or China and Mm -hmm. countries like Canada and Mexico and Australia are forced to kind of say, well, which camp do you fall into? And this was even the discussion when I was a research fellow in Germany, went to various institutes and would give talks and they would say, well, we have have the EU approach. Do you prefer that or the US approach? We would say, well, uh, are those our only choices, right? Mm. Uh, For a a country like Canada, we are small. Uh, It's hard to articulate our own policy responses and to have globally operating US-based tech firms take those seriously. But that's certainly a desire. And I think to simplify the choices of other countries into one of three camps, you know, you choose Mm. what camp you're in. And of course, the countries of those camps are going to ignore you. The EU was not offering Canada a seat at the table. They weren't offering to to consider Canadian ideas. They were simply saying, yes, well, maybe you could adopt some of our ideas and roll it out there instead of saying, what would work in your country? 
So certainly the focus, the focus on non-American platforms, non-American ideas, and and focusing on countries, especially smaller countries outside the EU and outside the US. I, I think there's there's some really great work out there that we should pay a lot more attention to, and we should we should be encouraging other scholarship in that area. Absolutely. Um, so to the question whether the state is back, would you say that um, you expect a return to more localized internet policy making in the, in, the, in the way that you're describing, that there's really going to be a reorientation towards making internet and internet related issues work for the local area that it's operating within? Yeah, to the question, is the state back? I argue the state never left. Right? The, the, from the beginning, the state was always involved in different ways, often in kind of working behind the scenes or um, as, as we know, you know, the, the US government working through Google or through Facebook. Mm. Chinese internet companies are often criticized as simply being handmaidens of the Chinese government, right? Tencent just does what the Chinese government says. You know, we should apply that same critical eye to Google, um, because Google and the US government have uh, deep uh, and long lasting interactions. So first of all, I, I think recognizing the state's always been there in different ways. Maybe we're recognizing it. Maybe we're more attuned in certain ways. Mm. With our current crisis, a global pandemic, I think has really sharpened policymakers' attention and the public's attention for the need for the state in different areas. Right. I think this was highlighted with Cambridge Analytica. I think it's been really made clear with you know, Amazon raking in the money with Google and Apple providing the, the, the app infrastructure for many of our COVID tracing apps. I think that's really sharpened people's attention to the dominance of these platforms and perhaps made people a little more uh, open to the idea of direct government intervention. So I think there's a, there's a, a time where we can think about government intervention as much more of a possibility but I think part, part of that really involves rolling back this idea of, you know, governments are too weak, they're too slow, mm. they're too technologically illiterate to regulate the internet. So um, the Biden administration, I think, has made some really strong moves in this area. And I think that's going to reverberate to some other governments who might have been a little more hesitant or a little more um, you know, caught flat-footed by this. So I, mm. I think that that will be good. But I think we also have to really invest in terms of educating policymakers, in terms of getting the right people with the right skills into government and recognizing governments have a legitimate role to regulate here. So if we regulate pharmaceutical companies as we as we should, if we regulate you know oil and gas development as we should, mm -hmm. why wouldn't we regulate tech companies? And to say that it's because they're too important that what they do is so flexible that they you know, can't be regulated or so complicated with algorithms they can't be regulated is to assign them some kind of technological exceptionalism, which mm -hmm. is a bit ridiculous, especially given we've seen all of their very massive failings. Yeah, I mean, uh, it certainly looks like magic the first time you look at it, but maybe <laughs> after a while people figure out how it works. You know, I think uh, you... In the book, there's a lot of discussion of the challenges uh, to, to internet regulation. But of course, at its basis, it's not potentially that complicated, right? If you're willing to, to, to bear some economic costs, it would be completely uh, conceivable that you say, you know, um, Facebook isn't allowed to operate, say, in Germany anymore. Um, and we're going to create a regulatory regime that allows for, say, 
German uh, social media companies to emerge, and they're going to be then very closely regulated by a German regulator according to mm -hmm. German law. It might not be very good or possibly quite expensive or otherwise inferior to Facebook, but the regulatory steps are relatively straightforward. What do you feel like has been the main um, barrier to those kinds of developments? And do you, do you see that happening anytime soon? In terms of barriers, one of the barriers, I think, is a lack of imagination. I think it's this idea that, you know, governments are too corrupt and, like I said before, slow and technologically illiterate. But we have public TV, we have public radio, we have public utilities. So, you know, in many some, some countries have a much stronger tradition and stronger support for publicly owned or publicly operated um, entities like that. So that's that's certainly a possibility. Um, I think part of it is is a failure because the tech narrative of private sector innovation and flexibility is so powerful. I think we have to take a moment to almost push back against this really strong idea, like you said, magic, right? That these mm. geniuses have developed things. We could be cynical and say some of the best minds of the, you know, our, our generations have been Uh, dedicated towards improving advertising, right? Because in many cases, that's what it is. Really fantastic, algorithmic-driven advertising platforms. And we should say, we should do a lot more. We can do a lot more and be a lot more creative than have real-time focused advertising. I think, you know, the pandemic's really pointed out some horrible inequalities and challenges. And maybe another social media platform driven by advertising is, is not what we need. So yeah, I think there's I think there's some definite possibilities. Um, the United States has had and really kickstarted or um, amplified some discussions on antitrust, mm. right? So thinking about some of these platforms, breaking them up could be a possibility. But I think more importantly, looking critically at their business models, how they operate, um, and in some cases, some of the activities they shouldn't be allowed to do simultaneously. Amazon being, you know, the platform that sells stuff, it also is a, a seller of things, right? It, 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 it uses its own algorithms to see what is popular and then uh, produces those itself or through its suppliers to undercut the first company. That seems to be a, a classic form of anti-competitive behavior. Natasha Tuzikov, thank you so much. Natasha Tuzikov is uh, assistant professor at York University. And she's the co-editor of Power and Authority in Internet Governance, Return of the State. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wichdok. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.